We're going to now turn to the scriptures, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Acts 4, verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to begin with Acts 3, verse 26, just so we can hear the very last word of Peter's sermon that leads into this particular passage. So we'll begin with chapter 3, verse 26. Let us hear now the word of God. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power Or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of God. All of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Let us go now to our God in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the the cross, um, the resurrection, these things that bring our redemption about. Uh, We glory in these truths and we desire to better understand them. Uh, We ask that you would send forth your word with power, attended by the Holy Spirit, not in the words of men, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ever since our Lord ascended to heaven, the proclamation of the good news about his victory has been dividing the world in two. And that's what we find throughout Acts, chapter after chapter. On one hand, we have 5,000 people saved, believing the word, but then we always have opposition. We have the leaders of the people coming, and they're disturbed, and they're annoyed by what's taking place, and they want to put a stop to the preaching of the gospel. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's dividing, but he's also saving. He's calling out a people for himself throughout the world, even as he divides that same world in two. He is, on one hand, the stone which the builders reject. He is a stumbling block to many, but to those of us who are being saved, he is the power of God and the wisdom of God revealed. 
And to us who are being saved, he is the only name by which we may be saved. And indeed, that's true for all the world. But what I'm saying is we have come to agree with that truth. We have received it. And that will be the focus of our message in verse 12 when Peter makes this very divisive claim. He says, There is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can you imagine a more divisive statement to make? This has been getting Christians in trouble ever since the beginning of the church. This exclusive claim. Here he is speaking to the authorities who had a hand in putting Jesus to death for blasphemy as they saw it. And here Peter's telling them, there's no other salvation except in trusting in this one whom you killed, whom God raised from the dead. Oftentimes, I don't think that we like uh, division. We do not like controversy. There's perhaps some that do. I think the vast majority of us would rather avoid it, especially in our personal lives. But when it comes to the claims of the gospel, we cannot get away from division. J. Gresham Machen, he once said, if you are afraid of controversy and division, you better just close your New Testament and never open it again. Because the second that you open it, it immediately divides. And yet this division is for a good purpose. It is a division that takes place so that the truth of who Jesus Christ is can be set forth for the salvation of sinners. So that Jesus can do his redeeming work. But this exclusive claim has been very uh, difficult for Christians throughout the centuries. And by difficult I mean it comes with trials it comes with difficulty Uh, you can think back to the first centuries of the church when the romans encountered the early christians it at first they thought these are just another group of jews they have a unique twist on things but you know the jews haven't been too much of a problem so let's just let these christians be but it didn't stay that way because the Christians began to make claims that were far more than the Jews had made. They, they imposed themselves upon the culture in ways that the Jews were not doing. And they actually told the Romans that they could not have any of these other gods. And that they needed to worship and serve the one true God alone. We think back to Polycarp, that brother in Christ who stood before the Roman authorities in the first century. And, and he stood there in the... Uh, the amphitheater, and he called all of the Romans that were mocking him atheists. Why did he call them atheists? Not because they didn't believe in gods. They, They believed in many gods. They had a large pantheon. But because he said, you deny the one true God. You reject him. And he alone is the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so this has been the claim of the Christian faith ever since the preaching of the Apostle Peter And that salvation is found in none other but Jesus Christ. And for us who are being saved, this is the solid rock upon which we stand. We say all other ground is sinking sand. We will find no other place. We can find no other foundation to build our lives but upon Jesus Christ. So that sets the stage for us. But now we need to remind ourselves of where we are here in Acts 4 and what's taken place, what's led up to this controversial moment when Peter and John are standing before the authorities answering for their crimes as they were perceived. 
What was it that Peter and John had done? What terrible thing had they done to get themselves put upon, uh, put into trial like this? Well, the answer is that they had healed a man of paralysis. It's a very dastardly crime, apparently, to these authorities. But more than that, they were preaching that this man was healed by Jesus. And that's what they really hated, especially, the preaching of Jesus. What had happened is that Peter and John had gone up to the temple at the hour of prayer, around 3 p.m. that day. And as they walked in, they saw this man sitting on the side here at the beautiful gate who was asking for alms. He needed money to provide for his basic needs. And Peter and John, they didn't have any money to give him, but they had something much better. They had the power of Jesus Christ to heal. And they said to this man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And this man immediately got up. He started leaping through the temple. He's praising God. And then what does Peter do? He says, this is a great opportunity for a sermon. Let's preach. And so that's what he does. Right here, before all the thousands gathered, going in and out of the temple, he says, this is not our doing, friends. This is not our power. This man stands before you healed by the name and the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the focus of the sermon was. The final words of the sermon, which we just read, was Acts 3.26. And Peter ends upon this note of saying, Jesus came to bless you. He, he came to turn you away from your life of sin and death and misery. Uh, verse 26, to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. So this was the message. But the spiritual police upon the temple grounds were not going to let this go any further. And so they come rushing into the temple grounds. They're hearing what's going on. They're hearing the commotion. And they must put a stop to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Our text tells us that they were greatly disturbed by what was taking place. Very concerned, they were annoyed by what was taking place in the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, you can understand this if you were one of the people that had a hand in killing Jesus and you thought you had done away with your problem, it would be rather annoying that some 50 days later or thereafter that there's people talking about Jesus in the temple. You thought, I I thought I took care of this. I thought Jesus was done with. I thought we had stopped this teaching. Well, You didn't stop it because Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit has been poured out and there's now no stopping the message of the gospel going forth. And so what do they do? Well, they come in, they they grab Peter and John, they throw them in prison for the night because it's already the evening and so they have to wait till the next day. They say, we'll have a trial the next day, We'll, we'll question them. But you know what I love about what takes place here? Even though the apostles are bound and put in prison, the word of God still goes forth. This reminds us, brothers and sisters, that you can bind the servants of Christ, you can put the messenger in prison, you can outlaw the preaching of the gospel, but the word of God is not bound. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2. While he himself was in prison, he he said to Timothy, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. 
but the word of God is not chained. Paul knew that it didn't matter. If he was languishing in prison, the word of God was still going to go forth because Jesus was mighty to save and Jesus was accomplishing his purposes, whether or not Paul or Peter or John are in prison. And that's exactly what we find in our passage. Even though they were put in prison for the night, even though they were stopped in their preaching, what happened? Look at verses 3 through 4. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Isn't that amazing? The power of the word of God This simple, brief message preached by Peter in the temple grounds was powerfully applied by the Holy Spirit to those who heard, and the number of those who believed the message came to be about 5,000 people. Now, some have looked at this passage and they say, well, the 5,000 is in addition to the 3,000 that were saved on Pentecost, so it's 3,000 plus 2,000, you get 5,000. Sometimes you read this in the commentaries, and I'm and I always wonder, like, what's the problem with it just being another 5,000? Is, is this our unbelief, perhaps, at work? There's nothing in the text that would tell us that we need to do a math problem here. It just says 5,000 received the word. They believed. I think this is another 5,000. This is the power of the word of God. And the, the repeated refrain of the book of Acts is that the word of God grew. The word of God multiplied. Yes, Herod, he dies of worms in Acts 12, but then the word of God grew and multiplied. This is the story of the unstoppable advance of King Jesus who conquers by his word and spirit and redeems a people for himself. And children, this is the first point in your notes that we handed out there. It says, uh, number one, God's word which teaches us about Jesus Christ has great power to save sinners. It has great power to save sinners. And maybe you think, uh, kids, well, I can't do much to uh, share this word. I can't preach to my friends. But could you read the word of God to them? You can tell them about Jesus Christ. You can share this word. You can read this word. And the word of God has power to save. That is what took place here in the preaching of the Apostle Peter. So next, we come to the the moment of trial. They are put on trial and uh, made to answer for their uh, crimes of preaching in the temple and healing uh, paralyzed men. Verses 5 through 7. It came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? As you hear these names rattled off, I want to ask you, does this remind you of another trial that we've read about? Similar names, same list of people. we got Caiaphas, we have Annas, we have the Sanhedrin, we have the family of the high priest. This sounds like another trial. The trial of Jesus Christ who was put to death by this same group. Here it is, the very same tribunal that condemned the Lord Jesus is now putting his servants on trial. And yet the disciples are not fearful. What a difference it is for Peter at this point, right? We think of Peter when he was questioned by the servant girl and uh, when Jesus was 
put on trial this previous time. He's quaking and fearful and he's denying, he's, he's, he's muttering oaths and he runs out and he cries because he denied his Lord. What is Peter doing now? Well, Peter has the Holy Spirit of God filling him. Peter's not afraid anymore. This is the power of the Spirit of God that enables us to speak with boldness about the truth of Christ. But what question do they, they ask the apostles? They say in verse 7, by what power or by what name have you done this? If I was to paraphrase this for you or to put it in ordinary speech that we tend to use, it's, I think the sense of this question is something like, who gave you the right to do this? Which of the leaders in Jerusalem had given them the right to preach in the temple grounds? Where was their license to preach? Where was Peter's ordination certificate? Was he authorized to do such things? And their assumption, I think, in the question is effectively, you don't have any right to do what you're doing. That seems to be the assumed answer here. And I want to consider from the response of the Sanhedrin and these leaders the amazing anatomy of unbelief. That is, I want to spend some time thinking about the problem of unbelief itself. It's a remarkable thing to think about how these men who have witnessed an evident miracle don't care about it at all. They, they will not receive the message. And sometimes we run, against, run up against unbelief and we're, we're shocked by it. We're thinking, how can you deny these things? You notice what these men are focusing on. They have no interest in the healed man. For them, it's all about power and authority. What, their, their authority, their power is being challenged by what took place. And that's what they're concerned about. They're concerned about themselves, their appearance, their, their ability to rule what's taking place, their ability to control the situation. They have no interest in this man. They have no compassion. There's no rejoicing. You don't even say them, see them uh, saying, Praise God for this healed man, but let's talk about what you're saying about it. None of that. It's not even on the radar for them. They, they could care less. And one of the problems, I think, of the miracle is that they had nothing to say against it. They, they had no explanation for it, and they don't like the implications of what it means. That, well, perhaps the power of Jesus Christ really is at work here. And this is a notable example of unbelief at work to deny the plain truth of the gospel. And if you oppose Jesus, you have to oppose what he does. You have to oppose his miracles. You have to oppose his message. You can't, you can't affirm really any of it. You have to reject it wholesale, and that's what they did here. Uh, we see this back in the ministry of Christ. You remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead? What did the leaders of Israel decide to do? They made a plan to kill Lazarus. Think about this. Haven't they reasoned through this? You're killing a man that was raised from the dead. Isn't that a problem for your belief system? Isn't that a problem for your rejection of Christ? What do they want to do? They want to kill and bury the evidence rather than dealing with the implications of the evidence. 
The same for this man that was healed. Everybody knew that he had been paralyzed for 40 years. Perhaps they'd been seen, seen him laying there for years. There wasn't any question about the reality of this miracle, but they do not want to deal with it because of what it means. It means that Jesus really did rise from the dead, and Jesus really is the only one who can save and heal and redeem. So I want to give a few observations upon unbelief, the problem of unbelief, and then we will move to the positive message of salvation found in Christ alone. So let's think about unbelief for a few moments here. The first observation I would make about unbelief is that it is not an intellectual problem here. It is not a knowledge problem. It it is not a matter of just bringing the Sanhedrin up to speed on the facts. We could say, listen, Sanhedrin, I know you're a little confused about this Jesus thing. Let me explain it to you. And then as if that would have worked to bring them to say, okay, you're right. We, we stand back from our claims. We receive Jesus. No, that's not going to happen here. This reminds us that when we're confronting unbelief, we are not just dealing with matters of knowledge, truth, and logic. We need to remember that the fall of mankind into sin has affected more uh, than just uh, the spiritual nature itself, but affects the body, it affects the mind, it affects the will. We call it total depravity. And what we mean by that is that all of man's faculties, our mind, our heart, our will, is affected by this fall into sin. Sin has an effect upon the mind. Sin darkens the mind. It corrupts our thinking. It, it affects our ability to think according to truth, to reason rightly. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that the Gentiles, they walk in the futility of their minds, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance and blindness of their hearts. Paul doesn't say that the, the Gentiles have these great thinking abilities and that if you just give them the very best argument, they will automatically see it and come to agree with you. He doesn't, doesn't see it that way at all. Of course, this does not mean we shouldn't give a, a sound, reasoned, biblical, logical defense of the faith. We should do those things. God can work through that proclamation of truth. The Spirit of God can use that to bring people to saving faith. But we need to remember that we may, we may set forth the scriptures with clarity. We may reason with the very best logic. We can give the very most compelling answers. And we think this is so plain. This is so clear. How, you, how could you deny this? And what, is pe- what do people say at the end of the conversation? That's just your opinion. And then they walk away. This should not discourage us. We should still do these things, but we must recognize that the Spirit of God must illuminate the heart and mind if someone will receive this message. And even when that happens, it didn't, you didn't fail in that opportunity to speak the truth. You didn't fail because you weren't rhetorically convincing enough. Uh, it wasn't that you failed because you couldn't think through a good answer to one of their objections. You didn't fail if you faithfully set forth the truth of Christ to them. You're confronting a corrupted heart and mind that does not want the gospel to be true. So that's the first observation on unbelief. It's not just an intellectual problem, but the second observation I would make about unbelief is this. Unbelievers hate the truth because of what the truth exposes about them. 
This is why the leaders, they so hated Christ, because he exposed the darkness of their hearts. He exposed the hypocrisy of their lives for all to see. He condemned many of them as whitewashed tombs. That's, that's a diagnosis of the heart, isn't it? Jesus in John 3, he speaks of how the light comes into the world, but people who love the darkness, they hate the light. They curse the light. They want to muffle the light or get rid of it. John 3, verse 19, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. If you're trying to hide, you're trying to hide yourself, you're trying to hide your heart, you do not want to get anywhere near the light because it will expose all the ugliness of your heart. And so they hated this light. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. They didn't want to have anything to do with this miracle. And you notice when they asked the question, they didn't even acknowledge the miracle itself. They didn't say, by what power or by what name did you heal this man? I think that was too painful for them to say. They said, by what power or by what name did you do this? We're asking, what's this? What, what are you talking about? What did... What, what is it that you're contesting here? They wouldn't even say it. They wouldn't even answer for it. And, and in Acts 4, verse 14, it says, they, it speaks of the, the, the Jewish leaders. It says, they saw the man who had been healed standing with them. They could say nothing against it. What are you going to say to the, the man who's been healed? How do you argue with the obvious physical transformation of this man? They wouldn't have been believed. They had no answer. And so they don't want to come to grips. My point being here about unbelief is that they do not like the light. They hate the light. And they therefore cannot uh, say anything positive about the light. Now a third observation we can make about this is that unbelief is nothing new at all. And I think it's good to remind people about this when you confront unbelief. Because people really like to be up with the times. Have you noticed this before? When you speak to people, they want to be known as those which are relevant, those which are in uh, step with the intellectual fads and currents of the day, and they say, well, look, I, I'm just one of those religious nuns, uh, N-O-N-E. I don't have a religious uh, perspective. I'm just none of these things. Or some, some are more militant than that. They say, yes, absolutely, I I'm a rejecter of the Christianity, I'm a fighter against it, I'm an atheist. You know, some people will use this label. And it's apparently a cool thing to take on these labels at this time, how, how cool a thing it is to be known as one who is spiritual but has no real convictions except the ones that you make up from day to day. It's, it's very fashionable. And, and people think to themselves, I'm not like those ignorant people who are still holding to those outmotive and repressive beliefs that have so long been disproven. Well, to that person, I would say, you are very late to the unbelief party. It's nothing new. They, these, these people were rejecting Christ 2,000 years ago. There's nothing new. There's nothing recent about this. Yes, it might have, you might have some new objections, some new arguments. You might have picked up some new book that has some fascinating new reasons to reject the faith that you think are compelling. But listen, just join the club. If you're going to join the unbelief party, join the club. It's been around for thousands of years. It's nothing new at all because the human heart naturally resists the truth 
and you're just doing what so many have done all the way back to them. Now, we move on from the issue of the unbelief and the hardness of these rulers to look at Peter's message. He, he sets forth Jesus as the stone which the builders rejected, but then the one, only one, by which salvation can be received. He says, you've rejected the cornerstone, but there's no other cornerstone to build upon. You must build upon this one alone if the building will stand. And so listen to how Peter responds to them. Uh, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Peter begins in a thoughtful way. He says, if we're on trial for healing somebody, uh, and that's a good thing to point out. It kind of brings out the problem here with this whole uh, trial process. We're on trial for healing somebody? What kind of religion ends up with you being against that? And this is the opposition that unbelief produces. Unbelief is so vehement against the truth that it needs to even ignore the good deed done in the name of truth. It's got to reject that too. I was remembering a noteworthy example of the same kind of thing happening. Perhaps you remember some of these events back in 2020. Back in 2020, when the COVID numbers were increasing and it was a big deal early on in that period of time, Samaritan's Purse, the ministry that we, many of us have supported, they, they set up these field tents in New York City to help with the overflow of people in the hospitals. And you may remember Franklin Graham, he preached on Easter, he preached a message about the resurrection from Central Park, it was televised on Fox News. Well, one part of the story that was not quite as publicized was that Samaritan's Purse intended to put a field hospital in a cathedral in New York City. And it was the Episcopal Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine, and they said, can we use your cathedral, let's you know, clear out the spaces and we will set up a field hospital. We'll take care of those that are suffering from this illness. And, and uh, it almost went through, except that the Episcopal clergy blocked it from taking place. Why would they do this? Were they concerned about their cathedral getting messy or something? Well, it wasn't really that. They were concerned about the intolerant views of Samaritan's Purse. In fact, it was not just the you know, leaders of New York City, people in the city council. They were also opposed to the field hospitals in uh, Central Park. They didn't want them to stay very long. They said, you can come here, but you need to get out as fast as you can because we don't want to have you here. But the, uh, di- the bishop of the Diocese of New York, he objected to Franklin Graham. And listen to what he says as to why he would not allow the cathedral to be used. He said, Mr. Graham espouses an exclusionary view and a very narrow view of what constitutes being a Christian. You see the the overlap here? The exclusionary view. Does it sound like Peter's preaching is exclusionary in its nature? Peter said in verse 12, there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. Peter called them to repent and believe the gospel and turn from their wicked ways. This is what Peter preached. and, And so when it came down to it, the... Uh, the clergy, the pastors of the New York 
Episcopal Church would not allow a Christian ministry to do ministry in the name of Jesus Christ to help those who are suffering because of the message of the gospel that Samaritan's Purse held to. You see, it's the very same thing. It's, and of course, they couldn't say that helping people that are in need is a bad thing, but they couldn't allow this ministry to actually help people lest they participate or support the truth of the gospel because that's exactly what they were rejecting when they said we will have nothing to do this, nothing to do with this. And so what we see here then is how unbelief viscerally reacts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we come to is verse 11, which Peter says that they've rejected this stone, the stone of Christ. He says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. What should we make of this language that Peter uses concerning Christ? Well, he's quoting, of course, from Psalm 118. Uh, Jesus himself spoke about this psalm. He spoke about himself as the cornerstone in Matthew 21. And the idea here is that it was God's divine intention that the cornerstone of the entire building of God's people and kingdom would initially be rejected. Rejected by the leaders, rejected by the builders of that nation, But that in that very rejection, the stone that was rejected would become the cornerstone of the building. This is how the kingdom of God would advance, would be through a rejection of the stone, but then it would become the cornerstone, and then the building would be built upon it thereafter, even though the builders wanted to have nothing to do with this. What is this language of a cornerstone? Well, the idea is that when you would build these stone buildings, these massive edifices like a temple, you had to have a foundation stone or cornerstone. And it was a very big stone. It was very important. It needed to be uh, well uh, constructed. And, And then all the stones that went from there needed to be connected to it and plumbed right to that stone. And so if you didn't have this stone, the idea is you can't build the rest of the building. It is the foundation And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Without a cornerstone, a building cannot stand. The cornerstone of God's church and the cornerstone we must build our lives on is Jesus Christ. And that's the conclusion of verse 12, that there's salvation in no other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. And the idea then is you're not going to build without Jesus. You're not going to build anything that lasts without Jesus. And so in verse 12, we have one of the most essential statements of Christian truth found in all the scriptures. This is the the truth claim that divides to say that you will not find salvation anywhere else under heaven. That means in the entire world, except in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is telling the very same men who killed Jesus, your only hope is found in the risen Jesus. And yet this was so offensive, this was such a stumbling block to think that they needed salvation. These men are the builders. These are the great architects of the nation. They would pride themselves in all that they had contributed to the greatness of Israel, the the traditions, the the teaching, the, 
the temple that they had seen uh, uh, be built up. They themselves were the builders of this nation. And then to be told, you rejected the stone. He's the only stone that you can uh, live upon. And therefore, you must receive him. And they, they hated this message. And of course, so many have hated this message ever since. Uh, people uh, hear this and they immediately respond. That, that cannot be. There, there must be other ways. There must be other paths to God. But when we take verse 12, when we consider its meaning, when we quote it plainly, we know the implications of it. We know that it is clear that the word of God teaches that there is no other way of salvation but faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so we can look at all the other world religions and, we, and people might want to point out to us, they say, well, if you look at this religion, they have this, this good thing. There's this, there's this piece of truth and you need to respect that and you need to exalt that. And, and we might say, oh yes, I, I know there's, there's pieces of truth in, in other world religions because of course mankind being made in the image of God, we're going to see echoes of the truth in different religions. That's not a surprise at all. But what we say based on the truth of the word of God, is that if you neglect the foundation, everything else collapses. You can't take a piece of this religion, you can't take a piece of that religion and amalgamate all them together and then reject the cornerstone because the cornerstone makes an exclusive claim and that exclusive claim is, I am the only way of salvation. And apart from Jesus, the cornerstone, you will not find a solution to the most prominent problem facing humanity. All the other religions and philosophies and worldviews are defective because they reject the sole solution to our biggest problem. And people do try. They try to build up uh, philosophies. They try to build up religions. They try to build their own life apart from the cornerstone. But one day they will find that the building will collapse and they will have nothing to show for it. Apart from Jesus, the cornerstone, you may attempt to solve the problem of sin and evil with methods and rituals, but they really do nothing to solve the problem of sin and evil because the only solution is found in the death and resurrection of Christ. Apart from Jesus, the cornerstone, you may attempt to find truth and knowledge and establish knowledge and build up a, a worldview and say, this is what life is about, but you will find that you don't have any foundation. It's just your own reasoning. It's just your own opinion. And there's a thousand or 10,000 people that disagree with you. Apart from Jesus, the cornerstone, you may establish or attempt to establish a meaning for your life and you, you set goals for your life and you say, this is what I'm going to do with my life. This is the meaning of my life. But then you'll find on the day of judgment that, that it was all for nothing. Your labor was in vain. And on a personal level, people do seek meaning. Uh, people want to have a meaningful life. That's, of course, we were made in God's image. We were made to have meaning and purpose, but we, we try to establish it elsewhere. We try to create some other uh, fabricated purpose, and it lets us down. When we seek to live our lives absent of God, apart from the God who created us, we remove the very foundation for meaning and purpose. We are left with a meaningless universe in which we ourselves must attempt to establish our own meaning. We're left trying to figure out how to solve these massive worldwide problems, but we have nothing to show for it. We have nothing to offer. 
We have the problem of evil in our world and no one has an ultimate solution or explanation. And, and then we have this personal problem that death looms over each of us. It is this, this unwanted guest that stands outside the door and eventually there's a day in which the, the guest comes and knocks and, and takes us away. And, and then the question is, what will we do on the other side of that door? The word of God plainly says that after death comes judgment and a judgment of eternity. There is either an uh, eternal life or eternal death, and eternal life is found in Christ alone. So what hope do we have in all of this? Well, people in our world try to provide answers. They try to, to put a hopeful spin on it, but those answers aren't worth much because there's just a thousand or million different opinions out there, and who are you going to trust? Others in our world, they've come to a more logical conclusion. They've said there really is no meaning. There really is no purpose. It's all in vain. Uh, Take, for example, the case of the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell writing in the early 1900s. He, He was rather blunt about all of this. He says, yes, we've rejected Christianity. Yes, there's no hope. Yes, there's no God. Yes, there's no meaning. Yes, life has no purpose. Listen to what Mr. Russell said about life and the foundation of life. He said, man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And then he gives us this exhortation. Only within the scaffolding of these truths... Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Does this sound like a foundation that you want to build upon? He calls this a firm foundation. The firm foundation of unyielding despair. At least he's honest. Let me summarize what his quote was, especially for the children. It's somewhat of a complex quote in the way he puts it, but this is what he is saying. We came into existence by accident, therefore we have no purpose. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much you achieve, no matter how many good things you do in your life, it does not matter. Why? Because one day the entire universe will end, we will die, the sun will die, the entire solar system will die. Therefore, your life is meaningless and there is no reason to have any hope. Therefore, despair. That's, that's what he's saying to us. We have to appreciate the honesty, but we wish that people would confront that and then consider the implications. And we, we saw, of course, the Sanhedrin would not deal with the implications of what was before them. They just had to reject it. They had to push it away. And we wish people would come to say, there are two paths here. One path that is offered is the path of life and salvation in Christ. And one path is despair and meaninglessness. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we do not have to build our lives upon the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Our Lord Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Kids, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, Jesus is the only way, the only source of truth, and the only source of eternal life. And perhaps you ask, you say, I do not know which way I should go in this life. I'm not sure I'm, why I'm here on earth or what I should be doing. And I answer to you, Jesus Christ is the way. Follow him. And you will know why you're here on earth and what you should be doing. Because he will show you the way to go. You may ask, I'm not sure who to believe. There's so many religions, so many truth claims. There's so many movements and political parties and causes. Who should I believe? And to that I answer, if you take Jesus at his word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You say, this is a broken world with death all around me. There's suffering, there's dying. What is the solution to all of this? And to that I answer, Jesus is eternal life. A life that never ends is found by trusting in Jesus Christ. And as he said in John 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What the Apostle Peter said to the Jewish rulers that day, it brings us back to the most central matters of Christian faith and Christian testimony. And it is this same testimony that we confront today, that the stone that was rejected by the world is in fact the only cornerstone that is safe to build upon. There's salvation in no other name, and it's in this truth we take our stand. It's in this truth that we build our lives. And if you build upon Christ, then no storm that will come can ultimately shake you or destroy you. Because Jesus Christ is a solid foundation upon which to build. Jesus Christ who died, Jesus Christ who is risen, Jesus who is at the right hand of God is the foundation upon which we build and upon which we boast. This is the solid rock that we stand upon, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we are thankful for the rock that is Jesus Christ. Uh, we exalt in him, we, uh, we exalt in him, we glory in him as our only hope. Uh, we pray that each one of us who hear that we would build our lives upon this foundation, that we would not reject the stone, but we would receive him as a cornerstone, uh, a precious cornerstone uh, to those of us who believe. Uh, we ask, O oh God, that this message would remain with us in our hearts, it would go with us as we speak to others. And that we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.